0: Oh, I think, I think it's, it's always exciting knowing that when we meet together as God's people and we open up His Word, our God speaks to us. So I'm excited about that. And I think, I mean, I was just thinking, I, I was a first-year student at Queen's in Belfast in 1985 when somehow I, I landed up, I can't even remember why, but I landed up at a little, a a group called the Irish Prayer Group, which prayed for the work in the Republic of Ireland. So for me, it's it's been a long road of praying for, serving here, cheering people on. There's some of us in the, in the room who've been kind of at this for a long time. I cannot tell you what an encouragement it is to be here and to well, sort of see you, you know, you know they're, yeah, they're still there. You could all, have. well, I shouldn't say this at the start. You could all leave and we'd be none the wiser up here, you know. Um, but, but, you know, it's the thought of, you know, of, of almost 600 people gathered here, that in itself is such an answer to prayer. I mean, honestly, for most of the last, well, almost 40 years, that would have been almost unthinkable that you could have 600 people here in the Republic for a Bible teaching conference. Mm. So praise God for that. And I think for some of us, even just being here and seeing each other is the most unspeakable privilege. So thank you. Mm. Great, we're gonna pray now uh, as we come to God's word. So let us pray. Loving Father, thank you so much. Uh, for your kindness, your goodness toward us. I thank you that you are God who speaks with power and authority. And we pray now that as we come to your word, as Gary opens it up before us, may his meditations be delightful in your sight. May his words proclaim your truth. And may we all bask once again in the wonder and the glory of the gospel, and rejoice in our salvation. In your beautiful name, amen. Amen. I, I, don't, I almost don't like doing this. I apologize in advance. But if, if it might be possible for the guys who know how to do such things... If, as a preacher, it is generally easier if you're preaching to people. And it would be a real help if we could have just a little bit of light sort of just to reassure me that I'm not just talking to myself. this is, it's almost like being backing, oh. <laughs> oh, okay, be careful what you ask for. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Okay, thank you for that. Sorry to wreck the vibe that's been so carefully, carefully created. Oh, can I say it was encouraging before? It's even better now, so thank, thank you for that. Um, can I say, there, there's something about being Irish which seems to grow in us when we leave. It's what, what makes those crazy Irish people in Chicago dye the river green on St. Patrick's Day every year. For me, it's what creates a deep bond between me and the guy from Harold's Cross that I meet every day walking the dog. Like we are like blood brothers. We don't actually know each other's names. And we've now been doing this for so long that we are way past the point when it's okay to say, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. So we both just brush it onto the carpet. But but it really, it means something. To, to see one another. Even when we moved to, to Brisbane in 2012, we were delighted to discover that the suburb that we live in, which to be honest, we chose by putting a pin in the map, in the map roughly between the church we were gonna be part of and the college at where I teach, by discovering that right in the middle of our suburb, brightly lit by green light every night, is a church called St. Finbar's. You know, Guess who populated this part of Queensland? And even now when I'm, my three daughters have got Australian accents, we're all Australian citizens, I'm passionately committed to the cause of the gospel in Australia, I'm also deeply aware that every time I open my mouth, I announce that I am straight out of Belfast and that I am and always will be Irish. You don't need me to tell you that being Irish may be hard to explain, but it runs very, very deep. The Taoiseach once said, being Irish means our nationality is never a burden. It's the opposite. It lifts us up. It provides a sense of belonging, and in the darkest of times, it gives us a feeling of hope. He says, to me, being Irish simply means that you're someone who calls Ireland home. But, you know, I didn't travel the 16,763 kilometers approximately from Brisbane to Kilkenny to hear ac- Irish accents again and drink, well, Kilkenny, I suppose. We haven't gathered here simply to celebrate the fact that we're Irish. We're here to remind each other and delight in the fact that God's unfathomable, immeasurable kindness has made us part of the people of God. And over the next three nights, we're going to open up the Word of God and think together about what that actually means. Who are we as the people of God? How should that shape the way we think and act? How should it shape the way we do life together? If we are God's people, what then does God ask of us as we seek to reach this generation of Irish people for the Lord Jesus Christ, as we speak and live the gospel before the people of the 32 counties, which make up our delightful, defiant, dogmatic, and often damp home. Over these days together, we're going to go right back to basics to look at what God's purposes are. See, right from the very beginning of the Bible, God makes it clear that He is creating a people to know and enjoy Him forever. He tells Adam to fill the earth with his descendants and cultivate it to make the whole of the cosmos a place where those descendants could walk with and know and enjoy God. Now, as you know, in Genesis 3, our first parents tragically opt to believe the evil one who promises that if they disobey what God says, they will be like God. The problem is, of course, that's a lie. It's hardly surprising coming from Satan. The truth is that they're already like God, and they end up swapping what they already have for nothing. And they slow the grand process of God building a people for Himself. But they can't defeat it, for God is utterly irreversibly committed. To doing this. God works through individuals like Noah and his family to keep the plan alive. He makes extravagant promises to Abraham, repeats them to his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. He promises that this family will become a people, a nation, to be his treasured possession that he's going to hold up before a watching world. He says, this people are to be a light to the nations. It's in and through them that God will ultimately show His glory to the world. And so through the Old Testament, the story meanders its way towards the day when all those promises become a reality. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes God's unfolding plan in Ephesians 3. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things. God did all this so that his multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church, his people to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Our God works in this cosmos, in and through us, his people. Weirdly, it is through us that God reveals and displays his multifaceted wisdom. We are at the heart of God's purposes in this world. Most people in Ireland have no idea that we're even here this weekend. Let's be honest, even most people in Kilkenny have no idea we're here this weekend. And they certainly do not know that it is here amongst a mixed group of people like us that meaning and truth and wisdom are to be found. And in one sense, it's no different to what happens every weekend as the locals of Ballina and Enniscorthy and Yall and Letterkenny and Carrickfergus watch as small groups of people go into all kinds of nondescript buildings and they have no idea what's going on or what they're missing or how significant it is. To be honest, we often forget ourselves how significant what we're doing when we gather as God's people is. Which is why we're taking time tonight to think about what it means to be the people of the Word. You know, whichever church you're part of, whichever part of the island you're from, every time we gather as God's people, a dramatic divine encounter is taking place. Because the God of the universe, our God, is speaking to us. There's nothing more foundational, nothing more important or significant or more transforming than that. You know, it, what's, it's what separates what we're doing here over these days from every other gathering in this city. It's ultimately what separates the church from every other group on this planet, because to be the people of God, to be the people of the Word, means listening to God as He addresses us right now in real time through the words He set down for us in the Bible see, to be the people of the Word doesn't just mean having a Bible, or even reading the Bible, or even being committed to systematic, expository preaching, you know, all of which, to be honest, are good things. But to be the people of the Word is to commit ourselves to listening to the talking God as He addresses us. I've been a Christian for a long time now, over 40 years, and I've got the absolutely solid conviction that being a Christian is not actually all that complicated. It's just hard. And part of that is because listening is hard. Listening is a remarkably difficult thing to do, at least for some of us. If you could come and kind of look in on our family at a mealtime in Brisbane, you would notice that Fiona, my wife and I love to talk. We've got three young adult daughters who also love to talk. When, when everybody's at home, usually you've got all five people trying to talk at once voicing opinions, sharing news, remembering shared experiences, laughing, asking questions, complaining about the fact you've been interrupted three times, and yeah, I've got something really important to say. The conversation careens from one thing to another at breakneck speed, even the dog starts to join in. Now, to be honest, when we have people in our home for dinner, sometimes it can be a pretty full-on experience for them. That's because when it comes to talking, interrupting, even arguing, We are world class, but listening, that's harder. Sometimes we don't listen because we already think we know what's going to be said. Sometimes we don't listen because we don't really want to hear what's being said. Sometimes we don't listen because, if we're honest, we don't think the person talking at that moment really knows what they're talking about. Add to that the times we're just tired or distracted because we're looking at something on our phone. Often listening isn't our strong point, and that's a real problem because when it comes to having a relationship with the one and only God, it's based on Him speaking and us listening. In fact, you could say that the whole Bible is essentially a call to listen to the talking God and do what He tells us. Remember that the Bible starts with God speaking the universe into existence. He speaks face to face to the man and woman in the garden. He speaks to all kinds of individuals through the Old Testament. He speaks to the nation and Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel. He speaks through the prophets, and eventually He speaks in the flesh through Jesus Christ, the one of whom the Father says, look, this is my son, listen to him. And right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, God is still speaking as he says, behold, I'm making everything new. The Bible says God's a talking God, and it's our job to listen, which is where Deuteronomy 4 comes in. It's just about the most complete explanation of why we need to listen to God in the whole Bible. Now, if you don't know, Deuteronomy is a sermon preached by Moses on the plains of Moab, kind of really on a hillside, effectively. And you're looking down over the Jordan Valley. You can actually see Jericho on the other side. It's about kind of 15 Ks across the valley. On a clear day, you can see Jerusalem from up there. And the people, after 40 years of mucking around in the wilderness, have made it to the edge of the land again, and Moses Moses preaches one last sermon to them before he dies. Now, in the first three chapters, he painfully rips off the scab of Israel's recent slow progress and terrible decisions on the way to Canaan. He says, that really should have taught you to mistrust yourselves and trust God, and to look to Him to help you to live properly when you get in there. But when they actually get to the point of moving, Moses says, really, one thing is going to make all the difference. Just one thing. In the church that we're part of in Brisbane, um, at the end of the service, our pastor usually says, okay, everybody, what's your one thing? And those words come, come up on the screen. So you have to, you know, hopefully you were paying attention during the sermon. If not, you've got to come up with something that sounded like it comes from the sermon very quickly, because when we go out to have coffee at the end, you talk to the person next to you, the idea is that the first thing you say is actually the one thing that God has impressed on your, on your heart. It's really simple. But it's, a, it's a great idea. But for Moses, the one thing he wants these people to get is that they need to listen. Okay, now if you open up Deuteronomy 4, we're going to race through it really quickly, but it'll help if you have it open in front of you. Here's how it begins. 4 verse 1, now Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I'm teaching you to follow so that you may live, enter, take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your ancestors is giving you. I love the way the Bible, it's almost like for slow learners. You know, it tells you up front what the message of the chapter is, listen to God. Now, the good news is if I lose you at any point over the next X minutes, you know, you'll still have actually got the gist of what's going on here. Just listen. And in fact, it's so important that Moses goes on about it for another 39 verses. The people are sitting in front of him, and he just keeps saying, listen to God. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just listen and do it. Now, immediately, Moses just presses home how important this is. Just a few weeks earlier, God's people had stopped listening to God and started going after what they saw, which was beautiful Moabite women and carved Moabite idols. Unfortunately, That meant that their eyes also saw something else. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what Yahweh did at Baal Peor, for Yahweh your God destroyed every one of you who followed that idol, the Baal of Peor. You see, not listening to the Word of God leads ultimately to the judgment of God, but listening leads to survival. Verse 4, you've remained faithful to Yahweh your God are all alive today. Listen to the talking God. That's the one thing that jumps out of the chapter. Now, Moses then backs up this one thing, this call to listen with four incentives to listen to God. They're really important. The first one was in verses five to eight that, that was read for us a few moments ago. We're supposed to listen to live. Now, by the time he preaches this sermon, Moses has been leading the people of Israel for a long time. Well, over 40 years. In that time, remember, he led them out of Egypt to the end of Canaan and then back into the desert for 40 years and back to the start of the land again. He said a lot of words to them over this time. I worked out in one of the days just before we left Ireland that uh, the poor unsuspecting people of Hoth and Malahide had heard me say about 1.3 million words in, in the 12 years. <laughs> you know, it gets to the point before you move that you know, you've kind of done everything and you realize, oh, I can't do that. Yeah, that's, I have to leave that for the guys after I go. So I spent my time working out how many words I'd said. That's a lot of words, 1.3 million. Moses had said a lot of words to the Israelites, like most of Exodus and Leviticus for a start, and Deuteronomy, and all kinds of other stuff. And at the heart of all those words was the call to listen to God and do what He says, because this is the beautiful life to which God calls us. Verse 5, look, I've taught you statutes and ordinances as Yahweh my God has commanded me so that you may follow them in the land. Carefully follow them. It will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the people. When they see and hear all these statutes, they'll say, this great nation is wise and understanding. What great nation is there that is a God near to it as Yahweh our God is near to us when we call on him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire Torah I set before you today. Listening to God's words and doing them is the key to enjoying life in the land with God. Listening to God is the way to to enjoy a rich and full and generous and satisfied and secure life that's so good that other people will actually look on with envy. They may say it, or they may not, but they will know. Moses says listening to God is the key to that kind of life. It was true on the edge of the land at Moab, and it's still true. Didn't Jesus say, I've come so that you might have life to the full? You know, one of the most enduring and alluring lies of the evil one is that we are missing out. That everyone else is having a better time than us that being a Christian is about kind of giving stuff up now in the hope that it will be worth it in the end. It's exactly the line that the serpent pushed with Eve in the garden, and he's been pushing it ever since. Sin will make you happier than doing what God says. Do you ever feel the tug of that? I think we all do. Sorry if this comes as a shock to you, but you know why we sin? It's because we want to. I've been at this for a long time. And sadly, I can't think of any sins that really anyone else made me do. I did them because in the moment, I thought I would be happier if I sinned. Than if I did what God had told me to do. But the truth is that from the beginning, every word that our God has said to us, as his people, has been custom-made for our deepest happiness. His Torah, that's the word that's used in 4 verse 8. It's not really a set of rules that cage us in. Torah means instruction. It's the most beautiful, vivid picture of what it means to be free, to live God's way. You see, listening to God and doing what he says is the way to flourish, whether we live in Moab in 1300 BC or in Ireland in 2023. See, it's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I've come to make it possible for you to live this beautiful life that was sketched out for you back in the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the Torah until it's accomplished. He came to enhance and intensify our life, which is why he says... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever scratched your head at that? That we've got to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? You know why Jesus says that? It's because the scribes and the Pharisees weren't setting the bar too high. They were setting it too low. Because Jesus was talking about the beautiful life. Jesus was talking about a Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8 life, which was expansive and full and rich, a life that would make everyone around us go, oh, I wish I had a piece of that. The Pharisees are going, no, how can we narrow this down and make it manageable? Jesus says they really have missed the point completely. They don't get the fact that my word is the key to living a life that is expansive. So all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Pharisees say, do this. I say, pardon my paraphrase, stuff that, do that. It's only when you get the fact that Jesus comes to enable us to live this beautiful, far-reaching, expansive life that our righteousness blows that of the Pharisees and the scribes out of the water. It's only then we've got what Jesus came to do. And of course, the marvelous news is that Jesus doesn't just say, go live that life. Jesus lives it for us and then makes it possible for us to walk in his steps. Now, I think that's a timely word for us because I'm not sure if you've noticed here in Ireland, but being a Christian generally isn't regarded as a very attractive option these days. In a very short space of time, really over the last 20 years or so, we've gone from having a a privileged position in society to being the pariahs. It's deeply disorienting. If you've noticed that and are trying to work out what's what's happened, I'd suggest you read this little book, being the bad guys, how to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't by another Irish expat in Australia, a guy called Steve McAlpine, okay? Now, there are only six of these on the bookstall, so that's about one between a hundred. So, you know, buy one for you and your 99 friends and we'll, we'll be sorted. But here, here's how Steve says, here's how Steve puts it. He said, how do we get from the position that pe- how do we get to the position that, that people think to be a Christian is to be a narrow-minded bigot? Well, Steve says we need to, to move on. He says the way we live today must be shocking in a way that's also compelling. It must raise questions for those looking on, questions such as if their way of thinking about sexuality and individual expression is so wrong? How come their lives look so good? Or if they're supposedly given to hate speech, how come they love and serve their enemies? Or why is their speech so measured when they're scorned on social media? Or why are their marriages strong? Their single people chaste and their same sex attracted people so fulfilled by non sexual relationships? See, living the beautiful life really matters. We need to learn to listen to live. Because in this generation, that will be what backs up and commends the gospel that we speak. So that's the first thing, listen to live. And then the second, well, verses 9 to 20, we need to listen to remember who we are. We're to be a people of the word. That means we're a people of, who listen So that we live and don't forget who we are. 4 verse 9, be on your guard. Diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen. And so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Why? The day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, assemble the people before me and I'll let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. Moses just piles up reasons to listen so that we don't forget. See, the great thing about forgetting is that it comes to us so very easily. We're all naturals. Forgetting takes no effort at all. But remembering rememberings hard work. For me to remember the stuff I need to remember, I've got alerts on my phone. I've got a calendar on my desktop computer that flashes reminders at me. I've got a notepad and pen on my desk. I've got a wife and three daughters who seem to think it's part of their ministry to me to remind me of stuff. But the green news is God knows the help we need if we're to remember and not forget. and We need this as God's people. Now, of course, we're not ancient Israelites, but as part of the fulfillment of what God is doing here, we still need to remember not primarily the events of the Exodus or what happened in Mount Sinai or in the desert, but as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ raised up from the dead. I just love that verse. You know, but remember, it's not Paul saying, you know, Timothy, You know, I I think you might forget, you know the Nazareth guy? You know that one? Remember him. Now, Paul knows that from moment to moment, the real challenge that Timothy faces, like the rest of us, is that we lose our grip on the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection has changed everything, that we lose sight of his awesome power or lose confidence in his presence. How are we supposed to remember from minute to minute, from day to day, week to week, that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, God keeps speaking to us to remind us. We listen to remember who we are. See, the basic pattern here is God speaks. We remember so that we learn, to use Moses' words, to fear God all our days and encourage our kids to do the same. Now, it's really important to get the fact that in the Old Testament, fear isn't a cringing response of terror. It's a full-blown, awestruck, all-of-life response to God. In a great little book called Rejoice and Tremble, Mike Reeves says, this fear isn't the minor key flip side to proper joy in God. This trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of our happiness in God this is the sort of joy that's most fitting for us. Our desire for God and delight in Him are not supposed to be lukewarm, but as our love for God is a trembling and wonder-filled love, so our joy in God is that it's purest, a trembling and wonder-filled, yes, fearful joy. To rekindle that joy week by week, we need God to speak. To remind us who we are. Now, Moses just keeps going on about this for the next 15 verses. Verse 11 Remember what happened in Mount Sinai. You were on a mountain blazing with fire. God spoke to you. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but you didn't see a form. There was only a voice. Because listening is what matters, he says in verse 12. Verse 13 He declared his covenant to you, he kept speaking and they were to keep listening. Why? So that verse 15, they wouldn't slip into idolatry. Diligently watch yourselves because you didn't see any form. God spoke. God's people need to listen to God so that they don't start listening to or longing for or living for anyone or anything else. John Calvin once famously pointed out that our human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. I don't know if you've noticed, but just by waking up in the morning and keeping breathing, we find new things to attach our significance to and find our satisfaction in other than God. The object of our affection keeps changing, which is why we need God to keep speaking to us, to reorient our affections back to Him. At different stages in our lives, on different days of the week, at different times of the day, (laughs) we find lots of things to put on a pedestal above God in being attractive, in being fit for our age, in being intelligent, in being right, in being nice, in being godly, in being a leader, in being humble, in sexual pleasure, in being servant-hearted, in being respected, being liked, being generous, being successful, being gifted, being a speaker, being gentle, being married, being single, being independent. We're really good at finding other things to worship. So we need God to keep telling us who we are. You see, if the words of God aren't utterly central to our lives, shaping, correcting, thrilling, reminding us who we are, we're asking for trouble. Because we're designed to be the people of the word. Two more things to go. The third one's in verses 21 to 31. We're supposed to listen to God because that's how we receive mercy, not judgment. At this point, Moses introduces the elephant in the room. Everyone's sitting there in the dirt in front of him knows the embarrassing fact that even though they can see and smell and touch the land of Canaan, Moses himself won't be joining them in it. Because of a painful incident back in Numbers 20, Moses wilted under the significant pressure of leading this bunch of whingers through the wilderness, and he stopped listening to the words of God himself. And he started acting like God. For Moses, the consequences were immediate. The Lord was angry with me for verse 21 on your account. He swore I wouldn't cross the Jordan and enter the good land that that the Lord is giving us. I won't be crossing the Jordan because I'm about to die here. Moses wants them to see that there is a lot riding on whether or not we do what God tells us. Moses says that for him and for God's people, Israel, in the land, there will be a real-time index of whether or not they're listening to God's words. For them, when they listen, things will go really well. When they don't, they will go really, really badly. And he says it's going to end badly because sooner or later you will stop. 4 verse 27, one day the Lord will scatter you among the people and you'll be reduced to a few survivors and you'll worship man-made gods. But even then, what are you to do? The way to receive mercy, to find forgiveness, is to turn back and start listening to God again. But from there, you'll search for Yahweh your God. You'll find him when you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened in the future, you'll return to Yahweh your God and obey him. He won't leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with you because he's compassionate. Listen and you will receive mercy, not judgment. Now we have to be a little bit careful here because remember in the Old Testament, Israel is a living, breathing, visual aid, a human worked example their experience is written down and lived out so that we can get the fact that listening to God is good and ignoring Him is really stupid. Now, of course, we're not a single nation living in one small corner of the Mediterranean anymore. We're drawn from every nation across the earth. It means it's different for us. The real-time index of knowing God's pleasure or displeasure doesn't work in an obvious physical way. Obedience and disobedience can't be mapped onto whether our lives are going well or badly in precisely the same physical and material way it could be for Israel. Cyclones and floods and droughts are not a reliable measure of God's displeasure. Jesus said to all of us, in this world you will have trouble. But when it comes to listening to God's Word... If if it's only if we listen to God's Word that we will know mercy, not judgment. Our disobedience won't lead to exile, but it will lead to misery for ourselves and others. When we mess up, disobey, slip into idolatry, how are we to find our way back? We're to listen to God and seek Him with all our heart and soul. We're to return to Him and obey. See, the rhythm of the Christian life is always one of listening to God, repenting, turning around, and running back. God speaks, we respond in repentance and faith. Repeat. That's why we need to read the Bible every day. That's why it's a great thing to be part of small groups. Above all, it's why we need to gather week by week as God's people. I've lost count of how many sermons I've now heard in my life. I've got to tell you, I do not go to church looking for somebody to tell me something blindingly new. But I desperately need people to tell me the same thing. To remind me of who I am in Christ. To make me listen again so that I respond in repentance and faith so that I walk in mercy, not judgment. And one more thing we're done. In 432 to 40, we listen to meet with God. How does our God make his presence and his power felt and known, obvious to people like us? He does it by speaking. That's how he shows up. Sometimes if I'm on on the phone, one of the girls will say, who is it? I don't say, I am speaking to the voice of your mom. I say, it's your mom. I'm speaking to her. I'm encountering her. Her presence with me is real, albeit limited. Of course, it's not the same as being in the room and holding hands or giving her a hug and looking looking her in the eye, but it's still a real encounter. And God says that when he speaks to us through the words that he's given us, we meet with him. I don't know how carefully you were listening when we read those words from verse 32, but they are astonishing. Has a people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever done what he has done? You were shown these things so that you would know that Yahweh is God, there is no other beside him. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. You. This is a definitive moment for God's people. What sets them apart? Ultimately, it's the fact that the God who rules the heavens, who made the the heavens and the earth, actually spoke to them in real time out of the fire and horror. But look at where Moses goes next from verse 37. It's not a one-off experience. Because he loved your fathers, your ancestors, he chose their descendants, and so on. Verse 39, today recognize and keep in mind that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. He's speaking to you, therefore keep his statutes and commands which I'm giving to you so that you may prosper. God's in heaven, and yet He is also here with us when He speaks to us through His Word. That's an astonishing statement. Sets things up beautifully for what God would do by speaking to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus. How do we meet with God in Christ when He speaks through the power of the Spirit through His Word? It's why John could write in John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the Torah was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ that our God speaks definitively to us. How do we encounter this Christ? When we read the written word which shows us the living word who is Christ. When we read the Bible ourselves, we meet with God in Christ. When we speak the Bible to each other, as we'll do over these days, we meet with God in Christ. And when we gather as God's people to hear the gospel being proclaimed from the Bible, God Himself, the God of the universe, the living God, shows up to address us in Christ. It really is the most incredible privilege. As He speaks to us, God gives us Himself. You see, to be the people of God is to be the people of the Word, And to be the people of the Word is to listen to the God who speaks to us. But as He speaks to us, He gives us Himself. Hebrews opens with the words, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son." When the gospel is proclaimed, God gives us the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an inestimable privilege. I don't know what you're expecting from Kinfire this week, what you're longing for, whether you've even thought about it at all. (laughs) But the reality is that we are the people of the Word. And that means that our God, the talking God, will speak to us through these days. He will give himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. So what's my prayer for us this week? That we would be the people of the Word and that as we open the Word together, We would taste and see that Christ is supreme, that in Him is the matchless, beautiful life that He calls us to and equips us to live, and that we would be re-energized as people who would take this word to the people of Ireland. Because they so desperately need it. For the life of God is found nowhere else. May God help us to be who we are. The people of the word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have spoken to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that incredibly, you, the God of the universe, continue to speak to us in these words that you've given us. Father, we ask that even tonight you'd remind us that you give yourself to us, that you give the Lord Jesus to us in the power of your Spirit through your word. And in your kindness, we ask that even this evening, You might open our eyes a little wider to the privilege you've given us, but more than that, to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is the living Word. We pray in His name and for His glory, amen.